So we come now to chapter 15, conclusion. This is the final chapter of this book. The Buddha once said he would be able to answer questions about Satipatthana without repeating himself or exhausting his answers, even if the inquiry were to continue for a whole century. Which is a dramatic statement. And he's... He says that in the twelfth um, sutta in the Majima, the greater discourse on the lion's roar, and what uh, um, what he says is um, uh, he's talking to Venerable Sariputta. I am now old, aged, burdened with years, advanced in life, and come to the last stage. My years have turned eighty. Now suppose that I had four disciples with a hundred years' lifespan, perfect in mindfulness, retentiveness, memory, and lucidity of wisdom. Just as a skilled archer, trained, practiced, and tested, could easily shoot a light arrow across the shadow of a, of a palm tree, suppose that they were even to that extent perfect in mindfulness, retentiveness, memory, and lucidity of wisdom. Suppose that they continuously ask me about the four foundations of mindfulness, and that I answered them when asked, and that they remembered each answer of mine, and never asked a subsidiary question, or paused, except to eat, drink, consume food, taste, urinate, defecate, and rest, in order to remove sleepiness and tiredness. Still, the Tathagata's exposition of the Dhamma, his explanations of factors of the Dhamma and his replies to questions would not yet come to an end. But meanwhile, those four disciples of mine with their hundred years lifespan would have died at the end of those hundred years. Sorry, Buddha, even if you have to carry me around on a bed, still there will be no change in the lucidity of the Tathagata's wisdom. So there's plenty to say about Satipatthana. So that's uh, Sutta number 12 in the Majima. If the topic of Satipatthana could not be exhausted by the Buddha, then clearly the present work can at best attempt only to offer a starting point for further discussion and exploration. Nevertheless, the time has now come to sum up the present discussion by attempting to highlight some key aspects of Satipatthana. In addition, I will place Satipatthana within a wider context by considering its place and importance in the context of the Buddha's teaching. Firstly, key aspects of Satipatthana. The direct path, quote-unquote, to Nibbāna, described in the Satipatthana Sutta, presents a comprehensive set of contemplations that progressively reveal ever subtler aspects of subjective experience. The mental qualities required for this direct path of Satipatthana are, according to the definition part of the discourse, a balanced and sustained application of effort, Arthapi, the presence of clearly knowing, Sampajana, and a balanced state of mind, free from desires and discontent, Abhija and Dhammanasa. These three qualities revolve like the three spokes of a wheel around the central mental quality of Sati. As a mental quality, Sati represents the deliberate cultivation and a qualitative improvement of the receptive awareness 
that characterizes the initial stages of the perceptual process. Important so that uh, <coughs> sati is like an embellishment and a strengthening of that uh, initial quality of, of awareness and cognition that is uh, part of the perceptual process, and then particularly before our perceptions get lost in conceptual proliferation and um, uh, and uh, deluded opinions and such like. Important aspects of sati are bare and equanimous receptivity, combined with an alert, broad and open state of mind. One of the central tasks of sati is the de-automatization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations. Sati thereby leads to a progressive restructuring of perceptual appraisal and culminates in an undistorted vision of reality as it is. Quote unquote. The element of non-reactive, watchful receptivity in sati forms the foundation for satipatthana <coughs> as an ingenious middle path which neither suppresses the contents of experience nor compulsively reacts to them. <coughs> so that uh, the uh, taking the patterns of, particular, uh, of sense experience and thought, emotion, and then neither suppressing those nor indulging in them and believing in them blindly, but uh, through that uh, what he is referring to as that balanced middle path, then um, that's the the role of sati is to uh, to say know and to receive and but to have no distorted perceptions or identification with the patterns of experience as they as they take shape. This mental quality of sati has a broad variety of possible applications. Within the context of satipatthana, sati can range from the coarsest activities, such as defecation and urination, all the way up to the most sublime and exalted state when sati is present as a mental factor during the breakthrough to nibbana. A similar breadth of applications can be found in the context of calmness meditation, or samatha, where the tasks of sati range from recognizing the presence of a hindrance to emerging with awareness from the highest meditative absorption. On the basis of the central characteristics and qualities of satipatthana described in the definition and in the refrain, the main thrust of satipatthana can be summed up as, and he manages to do the whole thing in four words, which is quite magnificent, keep calmly knowing change. Keep calmly knowing change. Four words. KC, KC, keep calmly knowing change. It's a sort of Buddhist version of keep calm and carry on. <laughs> keep calmly knowing change. And of course, in it with his uh, a particularly thoughtful and astute way of analyzing things, he then goes through why he's chosen these four specific terms to create his nifty little summary. With the injunction keep, quote unquote, I intend to cover both continuity and comprehensivity in Satipatthana contemplation. Continuity of awareness underlies the quality diligent atapi mentioned in the definition. The element of comprehensiveness comes up in the refrain. So in this little four-word package, he's putting together both the definition that repeats all the way through the Satipatthana and the refrain that repeats all the way through. So he's sort of uh, taken the essence of, of both of those uh, themes uh, and then shh, 
so um, uh, boiled it down to this uh, four-word phrase to, to uh, say, uh, summarize that, the whole quality of attitude. The element of comprehensiveness comes up in the refrain, which enjoins to contemplate both internally, ajata, and externally, bahida, that is, to comprehensively contemplate both oneself and others. The qualification calmly stands for the need, mentioned in the definition and the refrain, to undertake satipatthana free from desires and discontent, vinaya loke abhija domanasang, and also free from any clinging or dependence, anisito cha viharati nachikinchi loke upadiyati. The verb knowing echoes the frequent use of the verb pajanati in the discourse. Such knowing represents the quality of bare mindfulness, sati, combined with clear knowing, sampajana, both mentioned in the definition. Both occur also in the refrain, which speaks of contemplating merely for the sake of bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness, jnana mataya patisati mataya. So that's the bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness is jnana mataya patisati mataya. The refrain also explains the particular aspect of body, feelings, mind and dhammas to which this quality of knowing is to be directed, namely their arising and passing away. Samudaya vaya dhamma nupasi. So the knowledge of arising and passing away. Samudaya is arising, vaya dhamma is breaking apart or ending. Such contemplation of impermanence can either lead to an understanding of conditionality or form the basis for understanding the other two characteristics of conditioned phenomena, dukkha and anatta. It is this growth of insight into the unsatisfactory and empty nature of conditioned existence, based on the direct realization of impermanence, to which I intend to refer with the term change. So he's going through word by word. So if you remember, the phrase is keep calmly knowing change. So keep is to do with continu continuity and comprehensivity. Calmly is to do with um, being free from uh, desire and discontent and so on. Knowing comes from Pajanati and Sampajana. And then change is the uh, aspect of Anicca and uh, is woven in with um, the other two uh, characteristics of conditioned phenomena, Dukkha and Anatta. So keep calmly knowing change. It sort of uh, bundles all of that together in a, an essential little package. The essential features of Satipatthana contemplation can also be brought out visually. And he has another little nifty diagram. He's obviously got a mind that likes to uh, picture things. So he's got a nifty little diagram. So you have four cones here. Uh, one says feelings, that says dhammas, mind and body. And then in each of these, um, uh, in the triangle of the cone, you've got the passage from the... Um, the definition, and then you've got the passage from the refrain there in the center. So um, the, uh, the passage from the definition is diligent, clearly knowing, mindful, equanimous. So atapi, sampajana, satima. And then the um, refrain at the, at the very center is ajatava, bahidava. So internal and external, arising and passing away, knowledge and awareness, and awareness independent and det detached. So. When you, uh, if you take a look at this copy of this book yourselves, you can see that, but it's a, 
a neatly arranged little pattern of how it's all put together. In figure 15.1 below, I have attempted to illustrate the relationship between the definition, the four Satipatthanas, and the refrain. The central aspects mentioned in the refrain are in the center of the figure. So that's internal and external, arising and passing away, knowledge and awareness, independent and detached. So that's at the center. While the qualities listed in the definition are repeated in each cone. These four cones represent the four Satipatthanas, each of which can become the main focus of practice and lead to deep insight and realization. As the diagram indicates, undertaking Satipatthana contemplation of body, feelings, mind or dhammas requires the combination of all the four qualities listed in the definition. Such contemplation leads to the development of the four aspects of Satipatthana found in the center of the above figure and mentioned in the refrain of the Satipatthana Sutta. So, uh, the internal and external arising and passing away, knowledge and awareness, independent and detached. In this diagram, I intend to show that each of the four Satipatthanas constitutes a door, or perhaps a stepping stone. The contemplations included under the four Satipatthanas are not ends in themselves. Rather, they are only tools for developing the central aspects described in the refrain. Whichever door or stepping stone is used to develop insight, the main task is to employ it skillfully in order to gain a comprehensive and balanced vision of the true nature of subjective experience. And that's a, a helpful point that, uh, to remember that these are sort of stepping stones that sometimes we can get so busy with a method we forget what the method is for. And so that, um, the, and that's a, one of the kind of spiritual diseases that is, you find in every religion uh, where you get so um, focused on the, the practice you forget what the whole point of the thing is about and um, so that uh, Ajahn Chah would often uh, emphasize that and say to uh, particularly pointing out that remember that the point of, the, of all the practice is, is peace and um, all of the different kinds of meditation or reflections or um, the different aspects of uh, Vinaya training, the discipline and precepts and so forth uh, the point of it all is to uh, arrive at peace. <laughs> and uh, there's another sutta called the Relay of Chariots, the Rati Vinita Sutta, which um, is, let's see, where are we? It's escaping me at the moment. Which is. Um, where you have a, a succession of different, um, here we are, Sutta 24. And this was actually the, uh, became the backbone of the Visuddhimagga, the structure of the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification is built around this, this Sutta. And um, it it's focuses around these uh, two monks uh, meeting each other, Punamantani Putta, and Venerable Sariputta, they, uh, they have not met before, and um, they get into a conversation, and um, then um, they, uh, let's see, how does it go? And so he asks him, uh, you know, is the holy life lived under our, uh, under our blessed one friend? And so the, the, uh, they, they don't know each other, and then the, the um, 
Venerable Sariputta goes to Punamadhani Putta, and uh, he's not even sure that it's a, apparently he's not even sure that he's a disciple of the Buddha, whether he's a, a bhikkhu or not. But uh, he says, "Yes, I'm a disciple of the Blessed One." And then he asks him, "Why do you live the holy life?" And uh, <clears throat> uh, so Sariputta starts by saying, "Is it for the sake of purification of virtue that the holy life is lived under the Blessed One?" No, friend. Then is it for the sake of purification of mind that the holy life is lived? No, friend. Is it for the sake of purification of view that the holy life is lived? No, friend. Is it for the sake of purification by overcoming doubt that the holy life is lived? No, no, friend. Then is it for the sake of purification by knowledge and vision of what is the path and what is not the path that the holy life is lived? No, friend. Then is it for the sake of purification by knowledge and vision of the way that the holy life is lived under the Blessed One? No, friend. Then is it for the sake of purification by knowledge and vision that uh, the purification by knowledge and vision that the holy life is lived under the Blessed One. Uh, so then the, the Venerable Sariputta says, so you've replied no to all of these. So then <coughs> uh, he says, um, you've said no to all of these. And then at the end he says, um, so what is the reason that, uh, that you have um, gone forth and lived the holy life under the Blessed One? And then Punamantani Putta says, Friend, it is for the sake of final Nibbana without clinging that the holy life is lived under the Blessed One. And so, um, again, I won't go into all of that in detail, but it's just uh, those different aspects of purification and understanding and the development of the path. He said, no, it's not for that, it's not for that, it's not for that. It's, it's for uh, Nibbana, the, the sake of final Nibbana without clinging that the holy life is lived. And... Um, so that uh, when we are considering these different practices, you can get busy with the practice and forget that the, the point of practicing is not practicing. The point of practicing is performance. <laughs> it's the manifestation of what the practice is, uh, is for. That's, that's the point of it. Um, so like you don't cook to cook, you cook to be nourished. All of you, all of you great cooks who provide for us every day, you don't cook in order to cook. You cook in order to make that feeling of hunger go away. That's why you cook. <laughs> but we can get very busy with the recipes. And, uh, and some of you might be thinking, how did you know I was thinking about tomorrow's recipes? Maybe not. <laughs> but I didn't. Uh, but uh, that's what we can do. We get so busy with the, the kind of process, we forget what the whole thing is for in the first place. So these are stepping stones and uh, methods to arrive at that goal of peacefulness. Whichever door or stepping stone is used to develop insight, the main task is to employ it skillfully in order to gain a comprehensive and balanced vision of the true nature of subjective experience. In the Salayatana Vibhanga Sutta, which is Sutta number 100 and... Uh, 37, 137 in the Majjhima Nikaya, the uh, exposition of the sixfold sense space, Salayatana Vibhanga Sutta. The Buddha spoke of three Satipatthanas distinct from the practices listed in the four Satipatthana scheme. This suggests that the contemplations described in the Satipatthana Sutta do not determine the only proper and suitable ways for carrying out Satipatthana contemplation but only recommendations for possible applications. 
Thus, the practice of Satipatthana is not necessarily restricted to the range of objects explicitly listed in the Satipatthana Sutta. And so just for your information, this uh, Sutta 137, this has um, got a lot in it about equanimity. Uh, so this is a very um, useful uh, meditation sutta. It's also one of the very few places where the quality of atamayata is uh, spoken about. And so that uh, is uh, significant in that respect. So the three different kinds of satipatthana he mentions. Uh, says, Here bhikkhus, compassionate and seeking their welfare, the teacher teaches the Dhamma to the disciples out of compassion. This is for your welfare. This is for your happiness. His disciples do not want to hear or give ear or exert their minds to understand. They err and turn aside from the teacher's dispensation. With that, the Tathagata is not satisfied and feels no satisfaction, yet he dwells unmoved, mindful and fully aware. This bhikkhus is called the first foundation of mindfulness that the Noble One cultivates, cultivating which the Noble One is a teacher fit to instruct a group. So you're not a teacher fit to instruct a, instruct a group because everyone likes what you say. <laughs> it's whether you can be equanimous when and people don't listen and don't do what you ask them to and, and ignore whatever you say. So second, furthermore, bhikkhus, compassionate and seeking their welfare, the teacher teaches the Dhamma to the disciples out of compassion. This is for your welfare. This is for your happiness. Some of his disciples will not hear or give ear or exert their minds to understand. They err and turn aside from the teacher's dispensation. Some of his disciples will hear and give ear and exert their minds to understand. They do not err and turn aside from the teacher's dispensation. With that, the Tathagata is not satisfied and feels no satisfaction. And he's not dissatisfied and feels no dissatisfaction. Remaining free from both satisfaction and dissatisfaction, he dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. This bhikkhus is called the second foundation of mindfulness that the Noble One cultivates, cultivating which the Noble One is a teacher fit to instruct a group. Furthermore, bhikkhus, compassionate and seeking their welfare, the teacher teaches the Dhamma to the disciples out of compassion. This is for your welfare, this is for your happiness. His disciples will hear and give ear and exert their minds to understand. They do not err and turn aside from the teacher's dispensation. With that, the Tathagata is satisfied and feels satisfaction. Yet he dwells unmoved, mindful and fully aware. This bhikkhus is called the third foundation of mindfulness that the Noble One cultivates, cultivating which the Noble One is a teacher fit to instruct a group. So it was with reference to this that it was said there are three foundations of mindfulness that the Noble One cultivates, cultivating which the Noble One is a teacher fit to instruct a group. The contemplations in the Satipatthana Sutta progress from gross to subtle aspects of experience. It should be kept in mind, however, that this discourse represents a theoretical model of Satipatthana, not a case study. In actual practice, the different contemplations described in the discourse can be combined in a variety of ways, and it would be a misunderstanding to take the progression in the discourse as prescribing the only possible sequence for the development of Satipatthana. So, someone might say, oh no, it's got to be the body first, or you can't contemplate thoughts and, and moods until you've done the body and you've done feelings. And, and so, even though it might be presented in that kind of a way, sometime, that uh, he points out that's, that's not the case. 
even though someone might assert that with great vigor and conviction, um, uh, I also fully agree with Venerable Anayo that it's, it's not a matter of, of um, yeah, you've got to do A and then B and then C. It's just whatever is appropriate to the, the needs of the moment is what uh, the mind should focus on. The flexible interrelation of the Satipatthana contemplations in actual practice can be illustrated by taking a cross-section, as it were, through the direct path of Satipatthana. And he comes up with another nifty diagram. Such a sectional view would resemble a 12-petaled flower with the main object of contemplation. Here, the breath is used as, as an example, constituting the center of the flower. So... Uh, so you have breath at the center of the flower in the calyx, as it's called in English. And then the 12 petals, noble truths, postures, activities, anatomical parts, elements, corpse, feelings, mind, hindrances, aggregates, sense spheres, awakening factors. You don't have to remember all that. But so, um, so you're focusing on the breath, and that's the center of the flower, and then the other... Um, uh, say factors and aspects can be ancillary or extra supporting that but then while you're, fo you're trying to focus on your breath then a, a, a vicious pain in your knee arises uh, and so then it becomes apparent oh it'll be sensible to put aside my breath and bring attention to the feeling of my knee use the pain in my knee as a meditation object so you would let the the um, the, the breath be off of the edges and you'd bring feeling into the uh, into the center of the flower so from awareness of the main object of meditation the dynamics of contemplation can at any given moment lead to any of the other satipatthana exercises and then revert to the main object so um, as i said you can go pay attention to the knee bring about a, a sense of relaxation in the body work with the feeling in the knee and then come back to the breath again if you wish to that is, from being aware of the process of breathing, for example, awareness might turn to any other occurrence in the realm of the body, feelings, mind, or dhammas, which has become prominent and then revert to the breath, just as I was saying. Otherwise, in the event that the newly arisen object of meditation should require sustained attention and deeper investigation, it can become the new center of the flower with the former object turned into one of the petals. So if the pain in the knee is not going away, or it just, uh, it, it just uh, doesn't uh, say uh, uh, warrant being put aside, then just use that as the main object for the rest of the meditation. Or if there's suddenly a huge amount of noise outside the, uh, the hall, um, then okay, forget the breath, just do hearing meditation instead. Any meditation practice from the four Satipatthanas can serve as the main focus of insight contemplation and lead to realization. At the same time, meditations from one Satipatthana can be related with those from other Satipatthanas. This indicates the flexibility of the Satipatthana scheme, which allows freedom for variation and combination according to the character and level of development of the meditator. Understood in this way, practicing Satipatthana should not be a question of practicing one or another Satipatthana, but of contemplating one as well as the others. In fact, during the deeper stages of the practice, when one is able to abide, quote, independent and free from clinging to anything in the world, unquote, the practice of Satipatthana progresses from any particular object or area 
to a more and more comprehensive form of contemplation that embraces all aspects of experience. Expressed in the terms of figure 15.2, his flower picture, it would be as if, when the sun was about to set, the twelve petals of the flower gradually came together to form a single bud. So those of you who are observant will notice that daisies close up at night. So that's what he's referring to. Well, other flowers do as well, but daisies, there's lots of them around. <clears throat> so uh, daffodils don't close at night, but daisies do. So when the, when the sun goes down, the petals close, and it goes back into a bud form, and then the next day the sun comes up and the petals open again. So that's the... Um, uh, that this image of the, of the um, petals closing together uh, to form a single bud. Practiced in this way, Satipatthana becomes an integrated, four-faceted survey of one's present experience, taking into account its material, affective, so material rupa, affective, vedana, and mental aspects, citta, from the perspective of dhamma, and so dhammas as the, uh, the, the fourth uh, of the Satipatthanas. In this way, one's present experience becomes an occasion for swift progress on the direct path to realization. So, any <coughs> questions, thoughts? Yes, Andreas. How far in um, about the Rata Vinita Sutta, um, your thoughts about the meaning of some of these stages? I know that the Sudhimara has a particular interpretation, like purification of doubt, purification of view, that it means. I don't remember exactly, but something like suddenly seeing everything disappearing and decaying spontaneously or having the sense of fear. And I've always had difficulty correlating the meaning of the Visuddhimagga with the name given to each of these stages in the Ratavinita Sutta. And I think there were like a thousand years between when this. Yes, yeah. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts about that Well, my thoughts is let's leave that for another time. <laughs> because also the Visuddhimagga, Venerable um, Buddhaghosa, who wrote the Visuddhimagga, um, confesses that he's uh, uh, more of a scholar than a meditator, and that he's um, you know he, he's put the book together as a sort of a theoretical collection of pieces, and so um, and he um, at the end of the Visuddhimagga he says, uh, I, my, I hope that through the merit that, that is caused by by writing this book, that I'll be reborn in the Tavatinsa heaven, mm -hmm. and then that'll help me to create the causes for becoming a stream enterer sometime in the future. So it's rather like uh, the Visuddhimagga, I mean, it's got lots of wonderful things in it, but it's rather like Mrs. Beaton's cookbook. There's more recipes in there, it's like a famous Victorian cookbook. But she didn't cook everything that's in there. So, but it's, a, it's like the sort of archetypal collection of recipes, but she didn't, you know, she, she didn't actually cook everything there. So similarly, uh, Acharya Buddha Gosa didn't actually do any of the, all of the, any or you know, all of the practices that are there in the Visuddhimagga. So he's sort of putting it together as a theoretical model. So sometimes the theory works very neatly, but it doesn't actually match how the universe works. <coughs> so um, that's my initial thought. But we can leave that uh, general discussion for another time. Yesterday, I found. Reference to the egg and the chicken in it. It's in the Vinaya uh, Pitaka and also the, the part about uh, the bhikkhus being only Sotapana or Haya. Mm -hmm. And there's no reference to the not putting rules there. So mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. So, to continue on. 
And this next section is called The Importance of Satipatthana. The Buddha recommended the practice of Satipatthana to newcomers and beginners, and also included advanced practitioners and arahants among the cultivators of Satipatthana. For the beginner embarking on Satipatthana practice, the discourses stipulate a basis in ethical conduct and the presence of straight view as necessary foundations. According to excuse me, a passage in the Anguttara Nikaya, the practice of Satipatthana leads to overcoming weakness with regards to the five precepts. And that, if you're look, interested in looking that up, that's in the Book of the Nines, Sutta number 63. So the Satipatthana helps to overcome weakness with regard to the five precepts. This suggests that the ethical foundation required to begin Satipatthana might be weak at the outset, but will be strengthened as practice proceeds. Similarly, the straight, and that the word for straight there is, um, let's see, it's, uh, it's here in the note, uh, ujuka, titi cha ujuka, uju means straight. The straight view mentioned earlier might refer to a preliminary degree of motivation and understanding that will develop further with the progress of Satipatthana contemplation. Additional requisites for undertaking Satipatthana practice are to limit one's activities, to refrain from gossiping, excessive sleep and socializing, and to develop sense restraint and moderation with regard to food. So those are all listed. Um, if you're interested in the reference, um, what will be supported to Satipatthana in the Anguttara Nikaya, Book of the Sixes, Sutta number 118. So refraining from um, uh, being busy, gossiping, excessive sleep, socializing, um, and uh, engaging in moderation with regard to food. It might already have come as a surprise that a newcomer to the path should be encouraged to cultivate Satipatthana right away. That the Buddha and his fully awakened disciples should still engage in the practice of Satipatthana might be even more surprising. Why would one who has realized the goal, continue with Satipatthana? The answer is that arahants continue with insight meditation because for them, this is simply the most appropriate and pleasant way to spend their time. And the footnotes uh, is a quote in the Sangyutta, which is uh, Sangyutta 22, which is the Kandavaga, uh, Sutta number 122. So sec Sangyutta section 22, Sutta 122 where it explains that although arahants have nothing more to do, they continue to contemplate the five aggregates as impermanent, unsatisfactory and not-self, because for them this is a pleasant form of abiding, here and now, and a source of mindfulness and clear knowledge. Proficiency in satipatthana, together with delight in seclusion, are indeed distinguishing qualities of an arahant as we do in the, the, the ten subjects for recollection for one who has gone forth, do I delight in solitude or not? Once true detachment has set in, the continuity of insight meditation becomes a source of delight and satisfaction. Thus, Satipatthana is not only the direct path leading to the goal, but also the perfect expression of having realized the goal. To borrow from the poetic language of the discourses, path and Nibbana merge into one, like one river merging with another. Also, uh, as a little um, footnote on this, we, we have culturally we have this 
um, longing for retirement, looking forward to the weekend, looking forward to the holidays. Wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have to bother? Right? Again, I'm not reading anybody's mind, but that's, that's very strong in, in our cultural conditioning, certainly in mine. Wouldn't it be nice not to have to bother? Um, and looking at work or activity or engagement as somehow an intrinsic imposition on peace, that peace equals inactivity or non-engagement, and that any kind of activity or engagement is a bother, is a hassle, it's like something you'd like to do without. Thank God it's Friday. Um, I'm looking forward to my retirement. Oh, wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice when this is over? When the retreat's finished, I can breathe out. When the readings are done, I can have a rest. Yeah. But this is delusion, um, because the, uh, the whole nature of the Buddha's teaching around effort and work, engagement, is that these are not, inimic these are not uh, intrusive or not something that's in intrinsically disruptive to, to peace, that you can experience, you can realize Nibbana and be practicing right effort at the same time. <laughs> right action, right livelihood, these are all um, uh, not impositions upon peace. It's not like you practice right livelihood and then you can finish right livelihood and then you experience peace afterwards, but rather the, um, as he says, the, the, the path and Nibbana would merge into one so that you work with peace, you, you make effort with peace, you uh, engage in activity with, with peace, you engage in your livelihood with, with, uh, with peace. So it's a, a strong current in our society waiting for it all to be over. And, um, and even the, the Arahants uh, make a kind of, it's not just European culture, but um, there's this beautiful statement by Venerable Sariputta. He says, I do not long for life, I do not long for death, but I know my time is coming, like a servant does their wages. Like, I'm not waiting for it all to be over, but when Parinibbana comes, it'll be sweet. <laughs> not that I'm waiting. Uh, so that's a beautiful statement that sort of summarizes that that you can aspire to. I do not long for life, I do not long for death, but I know my time is coming, as a servant does their wages. I'm not sure. There's there's uh, Vakali who is ill, and Godika, but I don't know about a whole there crowd of them. One, one sort of, uh, um, I think they got convinced by one other Biko, uh, and he asked, I think a layman to. Oh, that's the one. that's the the third Parajika. They, they, um, the Buddha gave instruction about uh, unattractiveness of the body and then went off into retreat in the forest for a couple of weeks. Then when he came back to the sun and saw the, saw the, uh, the numbers in the Sangha had changed, he said, Ananda, the, the, the Sangha seems to be somewhat reduced. You know, what's happened? It's one of those triumphs of, of understatement. But they were not Arahants? No. Okay. <laughs> no. I, I, I thought that. No, no, it's, the, it's, the, it's the, the kind of origin story to Parajika number three. Okay, so let's continue. A similar nuance underlies the final part of the refrain, according to which the contemplation continues for the sake of continued contemplation. 
This indicates that there is no point at which the practitioner goes beyond the practice of meditation. It's like uh, you've giving up oxygen or giving up gravity. It's like, well, <laughs> why bother? You know, it's not, it's not something you need to give up. <clears throat> Thus, the relevance of Satipatthana extends from the very beginning of the path all the way through to the moment of full realization and beyond. The continued relevance of formal meditation, even for, sorry, the continued rele relevance of formal meditation practice, even for arahants, is documented in various discourses. These discourses show that the Buddha and his disciples were always given to meditation, irrespective of their levels of realization. And in the Sangyutta, um, uh, which is Sangyutta section 54, Sutta number 11, it reports that the Buddha and some Arahants engaged in the practice of mindfulness of breathing. Uh, from, other, from the Arahant disciples, Anuruddha was known for his frequent practice of Satipatthana. And uh, in the Sutta Nipata, it also stresses that the Buddha did not neglect meditation. And uh, in the, another passage in the Majjhima, the Buddha is characterized as one who practiced meditation and followed the conduct of a meditator. The Buddha was well known in contemporary ascetic circles for being in favor of silence and retreat. An illustrative episode in the Samanyapala Sutta, which is the second one in the Diga Nikaya, reports the Buddha and a large congregation of monks meditating in such deep silence that an approaching king feared being led into an ambush because it seemed impossible to him that so many people could be assembled together without making any noise. It's the king Ajatasattu. The Buddha's appreciation of silence went so far that he would readily dismiss noisy monks or lay supporters from his presence. If the hustle and bustle around him reached a level he found excessive, he was capable of just walking off by himself, leaving the congregation of monks, nuns and lay followers to themselves. Seclusion, he explained, was a distinctive quality of the Dhamma. So that uh, accounts of that in the um, Udana and the, the, the bickering bhikkhus of Kosumbi. He just left the monks to their arguments and walked off by himself. Also, the uh, I think in the Chatuma Sutta, where they uh, uh, the arriving bhikkhus are making a huge racket, and, uh, he has to uh, get them to uh, quieten down. The discourses report that even after his full awakening, the Buddha still went into solitary, silent retreat, like with the incident with the the murders and suicides. Even outside of intensive retreat, distinguished visitors were sometimes not allowed to approach him if he was engaged in his daily meditation. And um, uh, in the Diga Nikaya, in Sutta number um, 21, the Saka Panha, the questions of Saka, the king of the gods, in the, the king of the Tavatinsa heaven. Uh, so Saka comes to, to meet the Buddha, and then um, the, um, the wife of the uh, the Yaka king, the queen, um, forget her name, Binjiti. Uh, anyway, uh, the, the queen of the Yakas says, uh, "You you can't approach. He's meditating, so you have to to um, to back off." And she, so she's from a junior heaven, but uh, Saka approaches and she says, "Sorry, you can't see the Buddha because he's meditating." And he says, "Okay, I'll wait." <laughs> so that's in the Saka Panha Sutta, and. Um, also, uh, uh, in the, um, it says, in the, according to the Buddha's own statement in the Maha Sunyata Sutta, the greater discourse on emptiness, if while abiding in emptiness meditation he was visited by monks, nuns, or laity, 
his mind inclined to seclusion to such an extent that he would talk to them in a way that was intended to, to dismiss them. And that's uh, uh, in the passage of that uh, the, um, the Buddha is always inclining towards ending a conversation and getting rid of the visitors. <laughs> You're never looking to extend the, the conversation or to just keep chatting just for the sake of chatting. Um, however, Ananda, there is this uh, abiding discovered by the Tathagata. So this is Sutta 122 in the Majjhima. Ananda, there is this abiding discovered by the Tathagata to enter and abide in voidness internally by giving no attention to all signs. If while the Tathagata is abiding thus, he is visited by bhikkhus or bhikkhunis, by men or women lay followers, by kings or king's ministers, by other sectarians or their disciples. Then, with a mind, lead, a mind leaning to seclusion, tending and inclining to seclusion, withdrawn, delighting in renunciation, and altogether done with things that are the basis for taints, he invariably talks to them in a way concerned with dismissing them. So if you think I'm being impatient with you or I want to get rid of you, I'm just following the Buddha's example. I'm not wishing to extend the conversation unnecessarily, even if people are eager to, go and to carry on. But as he says, he invariably talks to them in a way concerned with dismissing them. Oh, very politely, of course. His secluded lifestyle earned the Buddha some undeserved ridicule from other ascetics who insinuated that he might fear being vanquished in debate by others, like he's keeping away from the other wanderers because he was afraid they were going to argue with him and, uh, and defeat him in debate. This, however, was not the case. The Buddha was not afraid of debate or of anything else. His secluded and meditative lifestyle was simply the appropriate expression of his realization and, at the same time, a way of setting an example to others. The passages mentioned so far clearly show the importance given in the early Buddhist community to retiring into seclusion and engaging in the practice of intensive meditation. This importance is also reflected in the statement that the practice of the four Satipatthanas, together with removing the hindrances and establishing the awakening factors, constitutes a common feature of the awakening of all Buddhas, past, present and future, which we've quoted before. From the Diga. In fact, not only Buddhas, but all those who have realized or will realize awakening do so by overcoming the hindrances, establishing Satipatthana, and developing the awakening factors. So that's um, from a quote from the Anguttara. It says, uh, This statement appears to be of such crucial importance that in the Satipatthana version preserved in the Chinese Majjhima Agama, it has become part of the introductory part of the discourse itself. So that's a very uh, significant sort of declaration. So that not only all Buddhas, but anyone who's ever uh, uh, um, realized awakening, overcoming the hindrances, establishing Satipatthana, developing the awakening factors. That's invariably the case, it is said. In view of the fact that both the hindrances and the awakening factors are objects of contemplation of Tamas, it becomes evident that Satipatthana is an indispensable ingredient for growth in the Dhamma. Little wonder, then, that the Buddha equated neglecting Satipatthana with neglecting the path to freedom from Dukkha. The relevance of Satipatthana to all the Buddha's disciples is also indicated by the fact that, according to the discourses, many nuns were accomplished practitioners of Satipatthana. Several instances also refer to lay meditators proficient in Satipatthana contemplation. 
These instances clearly show that the word monks, bhikkhave, used throughout the Satipatthana Sutta by the Buddha as a form of address to his audience, was not intended to restrict the instructions to fully ordained monks. And the note uh, says that uh, there, uh, the, the sort of formal commentary to the um, uh, to the Satipatthana Sutta says, uh, in the present context, monk, quote-unquote, includes whoever engages in the practice. So when it says, bhikkhavay because uh, it means practitioners, you know, meditators, people who are, uh, uh, say, followers of the path. Although the practice of Satipatthana is clearly not limited to members of the monastic community, it nevertheless holds particular benefits for them, since it counters tendencies towards personal and communal decline. As the Buddha pointed out, once a monk or a nun has practiced Satipatthana for a, for a sufficient length of time, nothing in the world can tempt them to disrobe and forsake their way of life, since they have become thoroughly disenchanted with worldly temptations. And uh, an interesting um, uh, statement, that, uh, that statement is in the um, Sanyutta Nikaya, uh, section 52, Sutta number 8, where it says uh, about um, if you practice Satipatthana, then um, your, uh, your inclination will be to stay in the holy life. And as he points out, uh, uh, he says, it's revealing to contrast this statement with a passage in the Anguttara, the connected discourses by uh, the numerical discourses, which is a book of the sixes, Sutta number 60, where um, according to which even a fourth jhana attainer is still liable to disrobing and returning to a worldly lifestyle. So um, that the people who, who are accomplished in, you know, a monastic who's accomplished in meditation can still get uh, caught up and attracted back to the worldly life, but someone who's developed Satipatthana uh, will not do so. So those, those two stand in contradistinction to each other. So that's uh, Sangyuta 52, number 8, and Anguttara, Book of the Sixes, number 60. Well-established in Satipatthana, they have become truly self-reliant and are no longer in need of any other form of protection or refuge. The wholesome effects of Satipatthana are not restricted to oneself. The Buddha emphatically advised that one should encourage one's friends and relatives to also practice Satipatthana. In this way, Satipatthana practice can become a tool for assisting others. The Buddha once illustrated the proper procedure for such assistance with the example of two acrobats about to perform a balancing act together. And this is in the sutta called the Siddhaka Sutta, and that's in the Sanyutta Nikaya, section 47, sutta number 19, Siddhaka, spelt like Neil Siddhaka, the, the aging pop singer, uh, also known as the bamboo acrobats. In order for them to perform safely, each, first of all, had to pay attention to their own balance, not to the balance of his companion. Similarly, the Buddha advised one should first of all establish balance within oneself by developing satipatthana. Based on establishing such inner balance, one will be able to relate to external circumstances with patience, nonviolence, and compassion, and therefore be able to tr be truly able to benefit others. And interestingly enough, the the um, the, the bamboo acrobat, there's a, if you've ever seen a book by Rohit Mystery um, called A Fine Balance, uh, there's a, a picture on the cover, at least one of the editions, 
of a, 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 a person holding a pole on the top of his finger, and at the top of the pole there's a little child. Doing, uh, and so that's describing exactly the, um, uh, the kind of acrobatic tricks or street, street acrobats of India, uh, of India, of the Buddha's time. And so it's still happening today. And so that uh, the little child, whose name was Frying Pan, no reason is given why she, uh, he or she was called Frying Pan, but uh, she's called Frying Pan. Um, first of all, the, the, the father says, yeah, you, uh, you climb up the pole and I'll watch out for you, you watch out for me, and that's the way you'll get up the pole, perform your tricks, get down safely, and we'll get a good fee for our performance. And she says, no, that's not the way. Um, uh, I'll look after myself, you look after yourself, and that's the way I'll get up the pole, perform my tricks, and get down safely, and we'll get a good fee. And in this dialogue, uh, the, in this dialogue, the Buddha said that the child is correct and the the, the adult is is incorrect. Um, and, um, and then he says, "How do you look after yourself?" Uh, he says, "How you look after yourself by practicing the four satipatthanas." And then, but he also it, it says uh, in an interesting development, yeah, the way that you most benefit others is uh, is through practicing satipatthana. Through practicing satipatthana yourself, you benefit yourself. And you benefit others. That's how you, uh, by benefiting yourself, you benefit others. And then, by benefiting others, you can you also benefit yourself. And how do you benefit uh, others by practicing patience, nonviolence, compassion, and sympathy? And that's uh, by practicing those qualities. You not only help others, but you also help yourself. So that's a very significant little teaching. Also, it kind of uh, embodies the, the whole Theravada approach of rather than. The sort of Mahayana, go out and rescue all beings. Um, it's like uh, in that little sutta, it encapsulates the, the basic principle of well, if you really want to help other beings, then you pay attention to your own mind. You practice satipatthana is the best way of helping other beings. So that uh, it's it is compassionate and thoughtful of others, but the method whereby you help others most effectively is through looking after your own practice. So it's a very significant little teaching in that respect. So the bamboo acrobats, that's uh, Sangyuta Nikaya, section 47, uh, sutra number 19. The simile of the two acrobats suggests that self-development by way of Satipatthana forms an important basis for the ability to help others. According to the Buddha, to try to assist others without first having developed oneself is like trying to save someone from a quagmire, a bog or a swamp, Whilst one, uh, whilst one is oneself sinking, and that uh, is a quote from uh, Majima Sutta number eight, uh, Sutta number eight in the Majima. He he compared attempts to lead others to realize what what one has not yet realized oneself to someone carried away by a swift river yet attempting to help others to cross it. And that's a, a an image he uses in the. Um, Sutta So, trying to get other, help others out of the bog while you're sinking in the bog, it's not going to work. Or help others to, to get a, across a swift river when you're being carried along by it, that's not going to work either. All these passages document the central position and importance of Satipatthana in the context of the Buddha's teaching. Indeed, it is the practice of Satipatthana, the systematic development of this unobtrusive quality of mindfulness, that constitutes the direct path to the realization of Nibbāna, to the perfection of wisdom, to the highest possible happiness, and to unsurpassable freedom. Satipatthana Sutta Ittitāna
Satipatthana Atakata, a commentary on Satipatthana Nititang. So, uh, any other particular questions, comments, reflections? So I feel this is a very uh, wonderful and rich book, um, and that uh, Venerable Analeo is a, a um, very wise and knowledgeable, uh, thoughtful, discerning person. So I, I feel grateful that he, he put this book together, and also that um, it's had an effect whereby people want to invite him to travel around the world and teach and run courses and such like. So he's been very active in doing that, and hopefully I'll be able to uh, invite him here at some point, and then he can do his own. Uh, say uh, presentations on these uh, on these themes. The I was going to use. Um, there's a, a more recent book that's come out, which compares the um, uh, the Pali much more specifically with the Chinese sutras. Um, and so I started to use that at the beginning, but it's it's, it's very technical and um, it's mostly just sort of comparing passages. So it's probably a useful resource to have the two side by side as an in, inform, uh, an informative, but it didn't really work trying to have it as a uh, as a sort of material to to read out in a, in a kind of systematic way. So, but the material that is in that that more recent book, uh, I would say, is is useful, is relevant. But um, uh, I, I haven't been referring to it because it's it's mostly saying, oh, in this in this agama it says this, and that agama it says that, and the third agama it says such and such, and so that. Um, in terms of speaking to a group and trying to elucidate teachings, it's the kind of thing that's going to get you more confused. Like, well, what did he say? What, which was was that the right one or was that the wrong one? Or was that well, where where were we? And that uh, it's more easy to get uh, confused and lost. And the point is to not get confused, more confused than we are, and to not be lost, but rather to um, use the teachings to elucidate. My pleasure. My pleasure. You're a, uh, very. Uh, it gives me a good excuse to go through these materials and get re uh, more acquainted with uh, the teachings. And uh, so, the um, by helping oneself, one helps others. By helping others, one helps oneself. So I've been able to give rise to patience and <laughs> what was it patience, compassion, nonviolence, and sympathy. So, <laughs> So, so there we are, Nititang, that was the end of the book, so um, I'm sure uh, you can find a copy for yourselves through Amazon or other places, or in the library here, and uh, I recommend, I left out a lot of the footnotes and such like, um, because they're, they're, you know, some of them are more technical, but there's a lot of usefulness in following those up and seeing where, where things come from and uh, uh, digesting it all, um, so 